0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm starting a brand new series called Jesus Rocks. And, uh, you know, I think where jesus when I say Jesus rocks, I kind of mean literally. I think if you want to look at the most unapologetic song about Jesus in the rock world, it's got to be Jesus is just all right. How many of you know that song? How many of you love that song? Uh, Skill testing question. When I say Jesus is just all right, you think of what band? different people said different things and you'd be all right by the way most people think it's doobie brothers here's the interesting thing about that song jesus is just all right was written in 1966 by the art reynolds gospel singers and it was a christian song and a christian band and uh understand this you know people misunderstand the title jesus is just all right it's like he's just okay that's not what it means for those of us that grew up in the 60s all right was like awesome today And people used to say, all right, all right, just like everybody says awesome today. So if I was to say, Jesus is just awesome, that doesn't mean just okay, does it? Same thing with Jesus Was Just All Right. So it came out, the song, in 1966. It was re-recorded by the Birds in 1968. Then re-recorded again by the Underground uh, Sunshine in 1970. Then it came out as the, with the Doobie Brothers' big hit. It was a big album. Uh, there's the, the album cover of it there. Listen to the music. They put it right on their album. Jesus Is Just All Right. And then it was done by The Ventures, by DC Talk, by Striper, and more recently by Slowhand himself, Eric Clapton. Now here's my point. If the Doobie brothers and the rest of these rockers aren't ashamed of singing about Jesus, why would we be? And so we're going to talk today about Jesus rocks. Now I will remind you, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a discussion. He's probably been two years with his disciples and uh, he's been doing miracles, doing this stuff. You remember that he never revealed who he was. He called himself the son of he called himself the son of man, not son of God. So one day he asks his disciples, he says, who do men say I, the son of man, am? And they said, well, Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but who do you say I am? And Peter, who was Simon, he speaks up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is flabbergasted. He's floored because this is coming from the guy who gets every question wrong. And he gets this one right. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That was his name, Simon, son of Jonah. He says, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Sidebar on this point, no one ever figures out who Jesus is without God showing them. That's why you can't argue people into the kingdom of God. And so he's very excited. Peter has got this, so he continues. And this is what he says. He said, also I say to you, you are Peter. He changes his name from Simon. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we have people, even today, that say that Peter was the rock in which the church was built on. Don't think so. For one thing, grammatically, it's not correct. We have Peter. The word Peter is, is the word rock, but it's the word Petros. It's in the diminutive. It's in the small form, meaning it is a small rock. So he says, behold, you are Peter, you're a small rock. And then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he uses the augmentative, which is large. Or in other words, he says, upon this rock or Petra, I will build my church. And so if you ever go to the Middle East, and you go to Jordan, you can go to the city of Petra, and it will look like this. It's a city, literally, made out of the rock. And as Crocodile Dundee would say, this is a rock. That's a rock, right? We have Jesus building the church upon the rock, not the stone. Peter's a stone. He's a piece of the rock. He's not the rock. The rock, of course, that he was referring to was the fact that Peter figured out that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock. Who is the rock, it says in the Old Testament? But the Lord is the rock. He is my rock and my fortress. There is no other. So the only explanation for who the rock is, is Jesus himself. I'm not going to say any more about that. I think you get that. So then Jesus tells a parable. And he says there are two men. One builds his house on the sand. The other builds his house on the... Rock And the one who built the house on the rock, that was the house who stood. So what we're going to do in this series, Jesus Rocks, is I'm going to tell you how to build your house on the rock. And I'm going to take the word ROCK, R-O-C-K, I'm going to use it as an acrostic, and here's my four message titles. We're going to talk about how Jesus R restores your relationships, O uh, overcomes every opposition, C creates in us character, and K keeps us kingdom-minded, kingdom-minded. So today we're going to start with the first one, Jesus restores our relationships, Here's what I think happens when we look at Jesus and the mission of Jesus. He did a lot of things. He had a lot of things to say. He did a lot of preaching, told a lot of stories. But fundamentally, this is what he came to do. His singular mission was to reconcile man to God and man to mankind, to his fellow man. And that is the picture of the cross, right? What did he say? That you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your might, and all your soul, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the cross is the picture of that man-to-God or mankind-to-God relationship and this man-to-man relationship. So you look in the Bible, Adam and Eve were doing pretty good for like five minutes until the fall. And then we look at the fact that they were broken off from the relationship with God and what happened to their human relationships. Well, let's talk about it. First two sons, what were their names again of Adam and Eve? Cain, Abel, how'd that work out? Cain kills his brother Abel. You go a little further. You got Jacob steals his twin brother Esau's birthright. You have Saul trying to kill his son-in-law David. You have David who has a son named Ammon. Ammon rapes his own sister Tamar. Absalom, David's other son, kills his brother Ammon. The list goes on and on and on. Why are we such miserable and horrible people? Because we live in a broken world of broken relationships. And when, when people have a broken relationship with God they'll have a very hard time having a good relationship with other people. So funny story, Kathy and I were watching one night a documentary on Hitler, love stuff like that, and it wasn't about his military prowess, it was about his personal life. And they were talking about his girlfriend, Ava Brown, and she had kept a diary, and in her diary she writes that her and Adolf Hitler had a very good relationship I started laughing during this doc- documentary. I turned to Kathy, I said, who were her other boyfriends? Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun? <laughs> she had a good relationship with Hitler? So anyway, the next day, I'd forgotten all about the documentary. The next day we were having a conversation and it got around to our own relationship. And so I'm you know, a little insecure in my relationship as most men are. And so I turned to Kathy and I said, I've been a pretty good husband, haven't I? She says, well, you're not bad. But you're no Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. So here we are. We're in, in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read your verse. I'll warn you up front. It's going to totally confuse you. But let's read it anyway. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So far, so good for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself a new man from the two thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to god in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity how many of you are lost halfway through that yeah, yeah, I lost you all. I mean that's a very complicated verse, you go. Say what? I got the first part that we were once afar off and we've been drawn near by the blood of Christ. Here's what it's talking about. I'll give you the short version of it. He was saying that because our relationship with God was broken, there was this separation not only between us and God, but between one another. And he's referencing the Jews and the Gentiles and how they hated and killed and murdered each other for generations and generations. And he says, when he recorrected our relationship with the Father... He broke down the wall of separation and he allowed us to become one person or one body. That's all he's simply saying here is that we're all in trouble. And his dual mission was to reconcile mankind to God and mankind to his fellow man. It's really that simple. So I'm going to talk about four things today. That was my introduction to the whole series. Here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, Restoring relationships is going to take four things. Number one, meaningful relationship is built on intimacy. Number two, good relationships can resolve conflict. Number three, stable relationships rise above uh, sensitivity. And number four, enduring relationships require forgiveness. Relationships are a lot of work, and uh, this kind of illustrates that. But let's talk about the first one. Uh, It says that meaningful relationships require intimacy. See, if I was to ask you what your basic human needs are, you would say things like uh, water, air, shelter, food. Those are, I can live on those things. The fact of the matter is, you can live for a while on those things, but we actually have a profound need for relationship, and in fact, intimacy. And without a certain level of intimacy, you can't live and you can't live long. And we know this because in 1990, the Iron Curtain came down. And we found and discovered these pictures and videos of these orphanages in Romania that were institutional orphanages with hundreds of kids in cribs. And they had all their basic needs. They had food, they had water, they had shelter, uh, they had air. But the mortality rate was 40%. And they discovered that the reason these children were dying in these orphanages is because they did not have human affection. And we have this need for it, and we actually have a need not just for relationship, but for a certain level of intimacy, and we're hardwired for it. Now, uh, when I say we're hardwired, I mean literally. Science has discovered this, and I'll tell you what they call it. They call it mirror neurons. And what happens is we have these neurons in our brain, they're, they're real things, nerves, uh, they are physiological neurons, and that when we communicate with other people face to face, even non-verbally, our neurons cause the other person's neurons to fire in a mirror image. Here's the illustration. This picture will explain everything. These these two are communicating on this bionic level. And I know you're looking at that. Go, That's weird. We've known this for a long time. Those of us who grew up in the 60s know exactly what this is talking about. It was called the Vulcan Mind Melt. Mr. Spock did it on everybody. All he had to do, look at it, he's got a hold of, of Dr. McCoy. He does not look like he's enjoying that, does he? mirror neurons. I'm not sure he's mirroring what's going on here. Let me tell you how they were discovered because it's kind of an interesting story. So they've found out that as they're measuring brain waves and uh, neurological behavior, they've found out that if I was to take a bottle of water and I was to open it up and I would start to drink it, I have neurons that fire in my brain that telling me that I am actually drinking water. If you were watching me do that, and you were thirsty, do you know that the exact same neurons would fire in your brain? It's very fascinating. They've discovered how this works. And Seinfeld did a whole episode on it. Have you ever noticed that Seinfeld does episodes on everything? I am currently working through all nine seasons. I'm binging them. It's so much fun. I learned a lot of stuff from my sermons this way. And there's a, there's, a, there's a particular episode in the ninth season that cracks me up, and Kramer, Cosmo Kramer, he decides that he, as, a, as, a, as a moisturizing cream, he's going to use butter because it's natural and it's wonderful. He starts smearing his whole body with butter, and then he goes up on the roof to suntan, and he falls asleep. And when they go up there and they find him, he's been sunburned, and he smells like roast turkey. <laughs> and they say, what's that smell like? It's roast turkey. It's a hilarious episode. And then, of course, you know Newman. He lives upstairs. He's the postman who's always hungry. And every time he looks at Kramer, he can't stand it because he smells like roast turkey. And he starts to water. His mouth starts to waddle because he's hungry. And this is the scene from it. It is so funny. (laughs) He he turns into a turkey and he turns to him and goes, hi, buddy. (laughs) It's so funny. Uh, But that's just for fun. Uh, I want to talk to you about how these mirror neurons work on a personal level, and what happens is when we interact with people without saying a word, oftentimes people will mirror the, 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 the effect that's coming from them from across. Now I'm just going to demonstrate, I'm going to pick right on the front row here. They're all laughing, they're all smiling, it took me like half a second, I just smiled at them, they were pretty grumpy there to start with, and, uh, and, and I smiled, and all five of them lit up in a big smile. They couldn't help themselves, they can't stay grumpy, because as I made eye contact, if I hadn't been looking at them, it wouldn't work, but as soon as I looked at them, and I smiled, up came the smiles, they started giggling, they started laughing, I do have this effect on women though, just so, just so you know, I have that way about me, I guess, and so, so, you've all seen this at the airports. It's very strange. How many of you have witnessed this? I love to watch them coming down the escalator at the Winnipeg airport, and you see the person greeting the person who's arrived from somewhere. It's more women that do it than men, but you'll see them do this. You've all seen it. Ah! How many of you have seen that? And as soon as this person starts going, ah! The other person, without thinking about it, starts going, ah! And they're, they're screaming and they're moving towards each other. And I'm watching this and I think, I can't imagine a guy doing that. <laughs> and, uh... And, uh, but anyway, what's happened is the mirror neurons have fired. And this, this intimacy, this excitement, this closeness happens as a result of this. And so I got to tell you this story. I, I, you know, I used to tell stories about my kids, but they're old and ugly and boring now. And so I tell stories about my grandkids because they're cute and precious and wonderful. And so I have three grandkids. You, you maybe know that. And I have two preschoolers. And uh, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, As a grandfather, you're useless. I mean, you have no use and no value. Unless I bring them candy or like McDonald's, they might say hi to me. Uh, But when we come in the door, when they see Kathy, Kathy's one of their caregivers. She goes over twice a week and plays with them all day long. So she's a playmate. So when we walk in the door and they see Kathy, this is what they do. Ah! When they see me, they do this. (laughs) <laughs> they literally looked the other way and walked by. And I thought, I'm not enjoying this. So maybe I'll do, put a little better ever, effort into the third one. So we have a third grandchild. She's now 10, ten months old. And uh, her name is Margot. And uh, I adore Margot. She's just so cute. And here, she doesn't know any better than to ignore me. And so I can pick her up and I can hold her. And I realize, with a name like Margot, it's French, that I probably do better speaking to her in French. She doesn't speak English anyway. And so I speak to her in French. And so I go, bonjour, Margot, mon petit. Et you, comment ça va? And I'm talking to her in French the best I can. And she doesn't respond back in French, but... She seems to be getting it. And uh, so we have this thing, and I hug her and stuff. And I just shower affection on her because she's so cute. So then the other day, I was over at the house, and I was working with my son-in-law in in the backyard, and Kristen, my daughter, came out of the house, and she was carrying Margot like this. And I looked up. We were just a few feet away, and I looked up, and Margot's eyes locked with my eyes, and she reached out her arms like this to me. And I went over and I picked her up and she buried her head in my neck. And Kristen said, I have never seen her do that with anybody else ever. To which I said, Kristen, mere neurons. We are communicating on a subconscious neurological level that you will never really understand. And it was so fun and so precious for me. And she really does adore me. I've managed to make this connection. And these connections are real. And you can't be super close. You can't be intimate. By intimacy, I don't mean like the Marge Simpson meaning sex intimacy. I'm talking about just a closeness. And you can't have closeness with every human being. But you have to have a few people in your world, in your life, that you have some level of intimacy with. So here's the big question. How do you move from superficial relationship to meaningful relationship that has some level of intimacy? And the answer is camping. Camping (laughs) will always produce intimacy because camping creates closeness and closeness creates intimacy. You know what it's like to go camping. How many of you camp? oh you poor souls and, uh, but you know how, what it's like to go camping you're in a confined space like a little tent or a little trailer thingy and you have you know, no insulation, no doors and no w- windows or anything and then you sleep on the ground in a sleeping bag two inches from the other person this is closeness you know I want to tell you something I, I've probably told you this before do you know growing up, I don't know much about camping because my parents never once not once took us camping do you know why? Because they loved us. They weren't going to take us somewhere. Make us sleep on the ground. And, and live with bugs. And eat food that's fallen in the dirt. They're not going to do that to us. They loved us too much for that. But what happens is. Camping actually has the power. To create intimacy in us. Because you're in this confined close space. And you're going to have natural conflict. So, so here's what Jesus did. He gathers his 12 guys. You've probably never thought about this. He gathers 12 guys, a very disparate group of people. I'll talk about that in a few minutes. And he goes on a a three-and-a-half-year camping trip with them. Right? I mean, every time you look at them, they're around the campfire. They're sleeping outside. I mean, I don't even get that. I mean, imagine going to a campground and paying to sleep on the ground. At some level, that's got to be an insult to the homeless people, right? But Jesus does this for three and a half years with his disciples. You say, oh, I saw them in the house a few times. They were eating. Yeah, they stopped in some relatives for meals. I mean, did they ever, ever bathe? I don't see any record of them bathing. They had no showers. They ever, I mean, can you imagine how much these guys stunk? And, I mean, you stink. I mean, men stink at the best of the times. When they're camping, they're disgusting. And these guys are spending three and a half years on this trip. So then, John's writing about it one day. He's talking, they're talking. Oh, let me let me ask you this: What is John called? The Apostle of Love. The Apostle of Love, right? And who knows what he refers to himself? He literally calls himself the disciple who Jesus. What's that all about? The disciple. Oh, by the way, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. So when I tell stories, I'm going to refer to myself as the disciple that Jesus loved. How would you like it if I showed up on Sunday morning and I said, hi, I'm Pastor Mark, the pastor that Jesus loves? You would all think there's something wrong with that. Doesn't matter. John's doing this. So he's writing, Book of John. He's telling a story. They're on a camping trip. And he's telling this story. They're sitting by the fire one day. And it says, and the disciple who Jesus loved laid on the ground beside Jesus with his head on his breast. Now, I don't know about you, that makes me uncomfortable, just reading that story. That this, these, these, these guys were fishermen. These guys were rough and tumble. They were strong and they mucked around with fish. He probably still smelled like fish after all those years. I mean, you never get that smell out of you. I mean, you know that, right? You know that old fishermen don't die. They just smell like it. And so we've got this, this guy. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Who is this John we're talking about? Who's lying with his head on Jesus' breast? Who is this guy? I'll tell you who he is. That is John, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder, the one who wanted to fire, call fire down from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. And now all of a sudden he's Mr. Lovebug lying down with his head on Jesus' breast. This is so nice. And I know that there's modern commentators and they think there's something weird going on there, like some sort of, you know, sexual orientation thing. and They're making all kinds of assumptions. That's not go- what's going on. Jesus took these men on a camping trip so that the closeness would produce intimacy so that he could get past the superficial with these guys. So he would have a group of men that would be able to go into battle together and to be able to defeat anything that came their way. And as weird as it might look to us in our modern culture, that sort of thing is not weird in all cultures. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the East Indian culture culture. But in East Indian culture, even to this day, it's very appropriate for men to hold hands. And you will often see men, four breast, walking down the street in India, not as much here because they recognize what it might look like. And they're walking down the street holding hands. And if you go to India, it's fascinating. You see four guys walking down the street holding hands. And it's actually not in an effeminate way at all. It's in a, actually a very masculine way as far as they're concerned. So some years ago, I went to India... And, uh, while I was there, I got assigned this, this translator because I speak English, uh, not one of the Indian languages. And so he, his job was to translate everywhere I went. And here's what we did. We went on a three week camping trip. It was called a ministry trip, but it felt like a camping trip. And I went with him, and we hired a car, and we went off into the boondocks of Andre Pradesh province. We went from town to town, village to village. We lived together. We roomed together. We ate together. We spent all our time together. His name was Joel, or Joel, is how he called himself. He's a wonderful young man. He was about 20 years old. And we became really good friends, because that's what happens on camping trips. You know where this story's going, don't you? You do know where this is going. So one day, we're in one of the towns, we're walking down the street, and he reaches over and takes my hand. And I'm thinking, no way, man, this ain't happening. Immediately, I had to scratch my nose. And I pulled my hand away and I scratched my nose. About 10 minutes later, we're walking down again, and he grabs it again. This time, I had to tell a story and use my hand, so I had to let go. So I did that. The third time, we're still walking along in the same direction. Third time, maybe five minutes later, he takes my hand again. He's telling me that we're friends. He's telling me that we love each other. And so he takes my hand the third time, and I went, All right, not doing this, Joel. It ain't going to happen. I know in your culture, this is what you do as men. In my culture, men don't do this. I have a reputation to uphold, and I'm not going there. Even in India. I kind of threw him aback a little bit. I said, I love you, man, but I am not holding your hand. (laughs) And here's the, the, the point I want to make for him it was not inappropriate he was showing me that we had connected we had connected on a personal and a meaningful level we had gone beyond the supernatural for me I was uncomfortable with actually holding his hand but I knew what he meant and the the point I'm making is we live in this culture where people have a hard time with intimacy people have a hard time with meaningful relationships. and maybe we need to get past some of that and I'm not suggesting men you should start holding hands probably a bad idea and uh, I'm going to love you I will hug you in the for you. I will not hold your hand so don't try. Five people tried already this morning. Uh, it ain't gonna happen. Uh, but maybe we need to get to that point where we actually have some proper and intimate relationships with people of the same sex and we get past all of this malarkey out there that it's some sort of sign of this, that, and the next thing. We have a, a need of some uh, personal, intimate relationship. Not with everybody, but there's a few people in this world that we need it with. You know, one of my favorite stories comes from the world of football. Any NFL fans in the room? you would recognize this name, Vince Lombardi. He was the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers when I grew up in the 60s. He was the most winning coach there was. The Green Bay Packers won the championship. There was no Super Bowl then, but every single year they won the championship. He took this team with a 25% win rate, took them up to a 75% win rate, and people all asked him. they said, Vince, how have you done this with this losing team? How did you do it? He says, let me give you the secret. He says, well, there's lots of teams with fundamentals and with, with good discipline, but there's one thing they're lacking, and that's love. And he says, if your players don't love one another, you will never win, win games. The guy on the field has to love his, his fellow player, his teammate, and he has to be willing to put his life ahead of his own. And if he won't do that, you will never have a winning team. And I think that's true in life. If we're really going to be the church that Jesus builds, that the gates of hell will not prevail against, we're going to have to be able to break that barrier, let that middle wall of separation come down, and get to the place where we have some more intimate relationships than maybe what we're used to and comfortable with. So that's the first and probably most important point I want to make. So meaningful relationships require intimacy. Number two, good relationships can resolve conflict. When we look at Jesus' disciples, you know what? This was an experiment of human conflict. Not only did he go on a camping trip, but he took this incredibly diverse group of men. Now, I know we had six of them were fishermen. We know that. They were three sets of brothers, and they knew each other from the Sea of Galilee. But the rest of these guys, they were a piece of work. You've got uh, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. You could not be more diametrically opposed. Simon the Zealot was fighting against the Roman occupation. Matthew, the tax collector, was collecting taxes from his own people to give it to the Romans. Those two men would have hated each other. And then you had Judas, the thief, the Bible tells us, the Gospels tell us. Everybody hated Judas. And what Jesus did was he thrust these men into this close relationship and he made them work through their differences. And you see lots of conflict. Remember, they were arguing about who was going to sit in the right hand and the left and who's going to be the greatest and all these things. And Jesus was unflappable about it. And he just made them work it out so that they could get to the other side where they became this group of men that would defend one another's life with their own life. So how do you resolve these conflicts? Where, where are you going to go? I think one of the great stories is, is in the Old Testament. And you have Abram and his nephew Lot. Abram and Sarah had come back from Egypt, and they'd come back to what we would call Canaan's land or Israel today, and they'd come back to the homeland. And he was working together with his nephew, Lot, and it says there was strife, conflict between the uh, herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram. And so Abram goes to Lot. He understood something about dealing with conflict. And he goes to Lot, and he said, let there not be strife between us, I pray, I pray. And he says, look at the land. It goes in every direction. Why don't we make space for one another? If you go this way with your herds, I will go this way. If you go this way, I will go that way. And so he says, you choose. And so Lot says, well, I'll take the well-watered plains down by the Jordan. And that's the way he went. And so Abraham, with his herds, he stayed in the highlands. And both of them prospered. But clearly, Lot took the better land. There's no question about that. And here was what happened. Abram, for the sake of the relationship, had to be the bigger man and he had to compromise. He didn't know if Lot was gonna be willing to compromise or not. So that was the the, the, sort of the key in this, is that someone has to be the bigger person. If you're gonna resolve a conflict, if you both dig in, I'm telling you, you'll get nowhere. And I always tell people, it doesn't matter who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to this person in a conflict, I say, you need to be the bigger person. And you need to resolve this. It's your responsibility. If I'm talking to the other person, I tell them the same thing. And I'm hoping one of them will take up the challenge. So we go into the New Testament. We see this interesting story. And it's Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas went on camping trips together. Now they call them missionary journeys. They can call them whatever they want. I know what they were. They were camping trips. And they would go on these missionary journeys that were camping trips, and they would go off together. And do you remember when they, they, they took someone? They took Barnabas' cousin, is who he was, and his name was John Mark. And so they go off on this camping trip, but what happened was John Mark, he got homesick, and he went home. He had went and run home to mommy because he was a mama's boy. That's what happened to him. And so anyway, they carried on with their missionary journey. It went well. They come back. They're at home base. They're ready to go out on their second missionary trip slash camping trip. Barnabas wants to take John Mark again. Paul says, no way, Jose. Not taking that loser. He's a mama's boy. Let him stay home with his mama. He's not going camping with us. Well, it says that the contention became very great between these two men. So much so that they had to depart from one another. They could no longer work together. They did not resolve this. So here's my question for you. When you read that story, or I just told it to you, who was right and who was wrong? Was, was Paul right or was Barnabas right? And do you know what the answer is? It doesn't matter. See, one of the big problems we make, one of the big mistakes we make in relationships is we need to be right. And being right I'm telling you, it's a setup, it's a relationship killer. And what happens is people dig in their heels and neither of you will compromise and I have to be right and I'm not budging from this. And when you make that, that conclusion, when you come to that place that you're not willing to compromise and you have to be right, you're in trouble. And I'm telling you, here's what I'm going to say to the men. If you're a married man in this room, you have a decision to make. You can be either right or happy, but not both. You can think about that one. You really can. You know, it's like the old saying, if a man is in the forest and he says something and there's no woman there to hear him, is he still wrong? (laughs) Probably. But here's what I want to to tell you on this point. It's very important. There is no virtue in being right. There's no value in it. There's no virtue in it. I'm going to tell you a terrible story, true story. It's not encouraging at all, but I want, want you to hear it. So, on Pemina Highway here, we have a lot of schools along Pemina Highway, and there's crosswalks. you push the button, and the yellow lights blink like that. And a few years ago, a kid was coming out of the school, he got to the sidewalk, he pushed the button, the lights went, a couple of cars stopped, he stepped out onto the street, and got hit by a car and killed. My question for you, it's a very tragic story, I'm not making fun of it in any way. My, my question for you was, was he in the right And the answer was, he was in the right. The other guy was in the wrong. But he's also dead. And so, being right is not a virtuous thing. Why do we have to be right all the time? And so, we had this two year COVID pandemic we went through, at least two years, and everybody was at everybody's throats. Did you notice that? We were all arguing about everything, we all found things to argue about. And I realized people were taking positions on things. And there was people taking positions on masks and vaccines and mandates and all this. And, and people on the other side. And I looked at my life and they were kind of split down the middle. I had friends on both sides. I had family on both sides. And I made a decision that I was not going to let one of those friendships fail. And I knew what I had to do to restore those friendships, to maintain those friendships. I had to, to desire not to care if I was right or wrong. And so what I started doing was I would say to people, they would tell me where their position is and whatever. And I would say stuff like this. Well, you're probably right. Were they right? Of course they're not right. I'm always right. They can't possibly right. <laughs> but it doesn't matter whether I'm right or wrong because there's no virtue in that. So I said, you know what? You're probably right. You know how that made them feel? Really good. They like it when their pastor tells them they're right. And then I'd have the same argument with someone on the other side, say, you're probably right. Are they right? Of course they're not right. I'm the right one that's right. I told you that already. But what happened as a result of this, I managed to get through this without destroying a single friendship. And I told people this in the middle of the pandemic. I said, you know, we're arguing about this stuff. We're arguing about masks. In six months, nobody's going to be arguing about masks. It's not going to matter. And we're going to look back at this. And remember, we were arguing about masks. That was weird. I said, there's gonna come a point where it's not even gonna matter. Now you look around you today, is anybody arguing about masks? People wear them, people don't wear them, nobody cares, nobody arguing about it. Know what the moral of the story is? I was right. That's the moral, <laughs> <laughs> that's the moral of that story. So this, the second thing here is that good relationships know how to resolve conflict. And i have giving you a few keys on this. I'm gonna crash land these last two points. Don't look at your watch and think I got another hour, although I could do it. And the third point is this, stable relationships rise above sensitivity. This is what Jesus told us about the last days. He said, you will hear wars and rumors of wars, and the love of many will grow cold, and people will hate one another, and people will be offended with one another. And when I look at our world today, we're seeing exactly that. We're seeing the wars and the rumors of wars and the pestilences and the famines and all this thing. I see the love of many growing cold. And there's one thing I see all around me is everybody's offended at everything. Have you noticed that? Everybody wakes up in the morning, they're already offended before they get out of bed. And they're just waiting for you to say something or do something so they can be mad at you. We now live in this hypersensitivity as a culture where people have this hair trigger. And if you say something that crosses me about anything about me, my race, my color, my language, my, uh, my sexuality, my hair color, it doesn't matter what it is. We go nuts. We have this hair trigger. We get so upset about every little thing. And I'm telling you, it is so detrimental to us. This sensitivity is killing us. It's an absolute relationship killer. You know what? Your feelings are valid. I'm not going to deny your feelings. If someone says something and you hurt, your feelings are hurt, okay, that's valid. Deal with it. You can't live there. You can't carry that wound. You've got to be able to rise above the sensitivity and go, maybe they didn't even mean that. Do you remember the, the story I told you earlier about how, how King Saul wanted to kill his own son-in-law, David? Do you know when that started? Do you know what precipitated that? Do you remember? I'll tell you. It's when the two of them went out into battle and they came back and the women started singing and they, say, they said, Saul has killed his thousands and David has ca- killed his tens of thousands. And Saul was jealous of his own son-in-law, and it said from that very day, he sought to kill him. I thought, the guy's the king, for goodness sakes. What a baby. What an absolute baby. To allow his emotions to get and rise up to the point where he was willing to kill his own son-in-law. And that's what happens when we see relationships falling apart all around us. People have given in to their sensitivity. So I want to tell you one little story about this, and then I'll crash land this message. So one Sunday morning, I'm preaching, and there's a woman sitting right over there. And I was preaching this message, and I made a pretty good point. And as I made this point in my message, I looked over, her and she went, shook her head back and forth like this. And I thought, what? What do you know? And, and so, so then I carried on, and then I made an even better point. And I looked over her again, and she shook her head again. I thought, seriously, woman? You're shaking your head? No. Every, and and so then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to look somewhere else for a while. And so I was preaching over here. I was preaching up a storm. I was really gearing it up. And I thought, well, she's going to like this one. I looked over. Nope. She says she's shaking her head like this. I thought, you're kidding me. Like, what is your problem, lady? I thought, I'm going to wrap this message up. So I wrapped the message up. I was preaching my guts out. And I now I couldn't stop looking at her. And and, and I just kept on preaching. And I kept on glancing over. And the harder I preached and the more... Made it, I became the more she shook her head back and forth it was going back and forth like the tick tock clock and I thought at the end of that message I thought, when I'm done here I'm going down there and I'm giving her a piece of my mind what do you know that I don't know what did you think was so bad about that message so I finished the, the message and I walked down there like this and she stood up out of her chair and she reached out her hand like this and shaking her head back and forth like this she said Pastor Mark that was a truly wonderful message she was shaking her head back and forth And she says, oh, by the way, don't mind me. My head shakes back and forth. When I get excited, I have Parkinson's disease. And the more excited I get, the more it shakes. And she was shaking her head. She was saying, yes, yes, yes. And I was saying, no, no, no. And this is what happens when we misread people. A lot of times that's not their intent. And we infer something that didn't even happen. So what we have to do. Stable relationships have the ability to rise above sensitivity. Last and final thing simple, simple, simple. You hear it from me many times. Enduring relationships require forgiveness. Everything I just told you is going to require you to live in forgiveness. So they're on a camping trip. Peter is exasperated one day and he says to Jesus, How many times do I have to forgive my brother? Like seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven, seven times, 70 times, which is how many times? 490, that's a lot of times. Or in other words, you know what he was telling his disciples? You need to forgive everybody. forgive everybody all the time this is my motto you know that right you should all be able to quote this I live by this motto to forgive everybody all the time you will be offended in this life that's why you have to go through life with this simple principle to forgive everybody all the time and if you've reached 490 times and now you're done then you miss the point because if you're counting you don't get this The rule is you forgive everybody all the time. We have the potential to see our relationships restored because that is what Jesus came to do, to restore our relationship with him, restore our relationship with one another. And to do so, we're just going to have to forgive everybody all the time. Let's stand together. All right, I need you to close your uh, eyes and bow your head just for a moment. I know that was an awful lot of information for one sermon, but it was a gooder. So we talked about this point about whether we have a relationship restored with Jesus. We were once so far off, but he has drawn us near through the blood of Christ. And if you're in this room and you haven't taken the first step and restore that relationship with God, you haven't invited Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not going to single you out. I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly. This is between you and Jesus. But I'm telling you, it is the key to success in life. And if you would like to make that decision, because you don't know, if you were to die tonight, if you go to heaven, I want you to just slip up your hand. Just take a moment right where you are. Slip up your hand. I won't single you out. Nobody's looking around. Maybe you knew him in the past and you've slipped away. Maybe you could put up your hand as well. And you can come back. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to all say a prayer together. And if you raised your hand or didn't, we're all going to say it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That you came to restore my relationship. First with you, and then with one another. And you not only died for my sin, you rose again on the third day, and you forever live to be my Lord, my master, but also my friend. And I thank you that my life has changed this day. And you will help me to love my neighbor and to love others as myself. Because today I'm a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.